Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Today I am joined with uh, by Matthew Shackleton uh, all the way from uh, the UK uh, to talk to us a little bit about uh, um, physiotherapy in, in some of our zoo animals as well as geriatric care and, and uh, supporting animals as they age. So thank you uh, so much for uh, joining us, Matthew. Not to worry, thanks for having me. I'm always enthusiastic to talk about what I do, so love the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, you do have a unique uh, sort of specialty, uh, at least uh, unique as far as I hadn't, uh, I've never met somebody that specializes in uh, veterinary physiotherapy. Um, so uh, it, I'd imagine it's, uh, you know, something super important and something, you know, as uh, we were just saying, I was really thinking about this topic and talking to people about sort of uh, geriatrics and and supporting um you know an elderly population of animals uh, as they age and and uh, you know making their exhibits as good as possible for them as they age and uh, all those things that go with that so very excited to talk today uh do, do you want to give people a sort of idea of what your background is and how you sort of got involved in this in this field sure yeah so it was as um with everything in my life it's probably more a lucky accident than any kind of preemptive planning um so i very much from a young age wanted to be a zookeeper that was mm. my sole goal and it was it dictated the courses i i did the work placements i did um and i had no idea that physiotherapy was even a thing for animals full stop really so i did had a kind of few years as a keeper there in collections in the uk um then my back started to suffer on me quite profoundly mm. um and you know because of that that limited how effective i was practically in a lot of the kind of husbandry tasks so i then changed over to education i was teaching and i used to teach on a zoo management course um in a college in the uk that had a, a, a licensed zoo essentially so i used to teach there as well and i kept going back and forth to the doctors um getting pain meds thrown at me essentially mm. um and one day uh, as a younger doctor joined the practice and said has no one referred you to a physio yet and i went no um, and she said well i'm referring you and within that session it kind of struck a chord of how this person was getting to the root of the problem rather than masking mm. the symptoms and talking through you know not just why my body had adapted which was exacerbating the issue but also how i was living my life and how i was managing day to day which wasn't helping or supporting recovery so that i found that hugely interesting um and my partner being the, the sleuth she is got online and discovered that there's these courses available to me um but i, I also met a animal chiropractor um, she said if she had a time again, she'd have gone down the physiotherapy route because there's mm. a whole variety of specialisms within physiotherapy, which is very, very well established in human medicine. Mm. Um, usually well established where you may have a physiotherapist who, you know, may do look specialised in things like women's reproductive health or uh, cardiovascular fitness or oncology. Um, you know, during COVID, there was physios on wards keeping 
people breathing, you know, mm. shifting fluids off lungs, their lungs. Um, and a lot of this is starting to leak into veterinary sciences as well, um, bit by bit. Um, and the research is starting to show that bit by bit. So I, after the, some sleuthing, uh, my partner found a master's course at Nottingham Vet School. Um, came across that, fell in love with it. It was a brilliant course. Um, and that was taught by the pathologists, neurologists, human physiotherapists and veterinary physiotherapists at the vet school. Um, I came off that. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just a happy accident of discovering, because as I said, when I come through the Zuru, I didn't know it existed. I didn't mm. know it was an option. It wasn't really happening. Um, there's still a few very um, isolated instances happening in zoos really in relation to rehabilitation. And it's usually someone who has a different background. Maybe they are a solely human therapist mm. or um, maybe treat a different type of animal. So it just made sense to me that we could bring this in and apply a lot of things we know to be true in how we approach your animals in relation to protective contact positive reinforcement cooperative care and why we weren't using that already for physiotherapy i just thought it was a bit strange so it mm. just kind of made a bit of sense to me so yeah <laughs> that's that's kind of it yeah yeah that's that yeah that's a great uh sort of crossover coming with the um keeping background i'm sure that helps you often as far as what is uh, you know knowing what is possible on the keeping end and what uh you know makes sense from you know that sort of husbandry end uh as far as like what they're able to do and 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 what their sort of day looks like i'm i'm sure that's uh, very very beneficial for uh, some of your zoo clients having that background usually so because i i mean i have a lot of friends and colleagues who are veterinary physiotherapists who treat maybe solely horses or solely mm. canine and you know if you gave me an equine patient who's maybe an inventor or i i don't have that insight to that world so even just dealing with that client they might be saying terms to me that are yeah just alien concepts and understanding what that animal's day would look like mm -hmm. is really quite alien so that gave me a really good insight to one communicate to understand what is possible yeah and three manage the animal in a way that's more akin to how and where the zoo world is going um because there has been historical examples where a therapist has come in and wanted to lead with manual therapy mm. or they've asked the keepers why they can't put the animal on a halter or why it can't be led around yeah. or because then they've not had that insight to that world and mm. they come across things like cooperative care and all protective contacts. So it certainly helps. Certainly yeah, helps. no, absolutely. Yeah. In, uh, in doing some, uh, um, you know, reading on, on your website and stuff, they mentioned um, that you had done some research on uh, Komodo locomotion uh, during yeah. your schooling. Would you like to sort of talk about what that was, uh, what that was about? And I, I'm sure reptiles are very underrepresented uh, population in the, you know, sort of physiotherapy world, because the physiotherapy world seems to be sort of underrepresented right now. So I'm sure reptiles get, uh, you know, even less representation. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your research and, you know, uh, what you think about that whole uh, area. Yeah, so for me, I, I was always as a keeper, um, very mammal orientated. Mm. And herps was an alien world to me. But as I went into education, and I kind of had was more forced to teach maybe practicals or theory with herbs. I found them more and more interesting. And then as I went through my master's degree, um, learning about pathology and disease, and then 
going off and applying that to what I already knew or doing additional research to reptiles, I just found them, um, I find um, disease and, ha and how easy things break very interesting. <laughs> mm. Obviously, there's a whole different scope of understanding there in reptiles. So that was an area that became profoundly inter interesting to me because there, I saw some early examples of um, therapists trying to treat reptiles hands-on. So maybe things mm. like osteopathic or chiropractic adjustments. And that made me a little bit nervous because we had no research. And if we think about a reptile that maybe have deficits in it in its care, its environmental environmental parameters, it could be hypercalcemic or is quite likely hypercalcemic and experiencing metabolic bone disease. That comes along with a whole loads of issues like reduction in bone density um, and micro fractures and nerve function, muscular function. So I was quite nervous about if people are going in and applying force to these structures, is that a good thing? And in mm. my head, I, I didn't think that was the case. So what I wanted to do was I got quite excited about maybe doing research about could I use cooperative care? Could I use positive reinforcement, reinforcement and just demonstrate that we could get some kind of measurable change through putting something really simple in to a reptile that presents a lameness. Um, Komodos came up to me because I, I there's a few different zoo vets I knew over the years who had mentioned Komodos to me. Um, I looked at a, a piece of research from Zinnerman um, that showed that there was a big problem with cervical subluxations. So um, partial kind of dislocations in the, in the, the neck mm. vertebrae. Um, so what I wanted to evidence was whether we could put something in place. And I had thoughts about why some of this might be happening. But then going to the literature, I realized, well, actually, because as you pointed out, herps are generally very utilized or very understudied anyway i had no real way of measuring because lameness and gait changes in reptiles is very 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 poorly researched mm. so i had to go from my super exciting idea of trying to change the world in my own head to going back to what does lameness look like yeah <laughs> in in a lizard and komodo dragons being a great example because biomechanically as such a large animal they have what we call a sprawling stance where the limbs are out in what we call set to the side of the body right, right. so as they get bigger that puts a lot of stress and strain on those joints for an animal that's standing in more what we call the sagittal plane so if you think about elephants giraffe megafauna generally mm -hmm. with mammals the bigger they get the more upright they become Mm -hmm. because the center of gravity is coming directly down. So if you come upright, you have a much better kind of measure of force or, right. um, or support for that force. So kind of think biomechanically, Komodo dragons go wrong really quite quickly when they do go wrong. So essentially, I managed to get some data from wild dragons that was very kindly collected for me by the Komodo survival program out in Indonesia um, and then I went around collections in the UK um, I got six collections in the, in the end um, was very lucky to get some help from researchers the Royal Veterinary College and the vet school um, and we basically just looked at what those different what was what some of the key variables were in what we thought was a healthy dragon and what we thought was a lame dragon um, and found that the key things we understand of lameness were there and present in lizards essentially yeah that's that's fascinating yeah no there's that's a lot of uh, good points as far as like the way they are uh built like physiologically and uh you know because that i'd imagine would be a common problem in a lot of zoos so i'm sure that was uh you know useful yeah. useful information for them a re useful research for them to have um 
I, I, I saw as well that you wrote uh, a, a book chapter on sort of traditional approaches to things like pain management and physiotherapy, uh, you know, versus maybe what, what your sort of approach is. Do you want to sort of give people an idea of what your approach is and what your general sort of way of thinking versus the traditional way of pain management and physiotherapy and stuff? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting one in the, um, the approach I use isn't really anything new. Um, it's just bringing two worlds together. Um, I think that because, as I mentioned, those historical cases have been people who haven't had that insight to either the species or the management, they've maybe led with a very singular approach. So mm. there's probably about three or four papers full stop on on kind of rehab in, in zoo animals. And it, I mean, obviously, good science looks at something and really scrutinizes something. But these have been more case studies of how they did something. Right. And it tends to have been a singular approach. Um, and essentially, kind of looking at modern rehabilitation in, in humans, there's a real shift in how in how we do it. And um, so if you think about a patient that may have arthritis the advice years would ago would have been here's your pain meds go home and rest mm. the advice now is you know actually we want to get you moving we want to get you active in a controlled healthy way and we then are probably going to send you to a physiotherapist who's going to assess and give you exercise to strengthen the anatomy and return the function if you've got a person with a real chronic musculoskeletal disease they may end up actually seeing um a what we call an occupational therapist who's going to look at their home environment, look at their lifestyle and go, actually, do you know, if we make these changes, we can reduce that risk or we can reduce those flare ups you're having and we can make life easier, but actually facilitate movement and a healthy lifestyle by shaping that person's life and environment around them. And then now we see a huge um, thing where when we have a real chronic pain patient, they may see even a cognitive behavioral therapist hmm. because there's a huge link between pain and stress and behavior in humans. And we know that even just sitting and thinking about your pain increases your pain awareness. Hmm, um, and right. we know that actually getting a person to bring, take hobby, you know, try a new hobby or manage stress will impact inflammation in, in the body and pain experience. So what I've kind of, the approach I've used is rather than going in and being totally hands-on and going back every three months to do the same manual treatment and have to redo it over a long period of time. I try and work with the vets, the keepers, and we look at the enclosure. We look where there might be some danger areas where the animals having to struggle or work too hard, mm. where they may not be resting as well, where there might be services or enrichment devices that are aggravating things as well. Um, and then we build on any training that's in there to put in the exercises just like you would if you kind of saw a physio who would probably put those exercises in place for you to go away and do so it, it becomes quite um keeper led in some ways where the keepers are adapting their husbandry to support the animal um, and they are working with the animal day in and day out or periodically to put the exercise in place because again if i just did manual therapy and um, because all manual therapists carers osteos physios we're all doing the same thing from a different approach and mm. um, but if you have a chronic problem and you don't tackle lifestyle you might be missing a cause a causal factor as yeah. well you don't actually strengthen the anatomy and return the function i'd be going back and doing it again and again which from a financial point of view would be brilliant for me yeah but i wouldn't be seeing big fundamental change so 
I take quite a hands-off approach with most of my Zoom clients. Um, and it's much more, uh, let's look at the whole picture because we might be missing a causal mm. factor or we're not fully supporting that patient. Right. Yeah. So uh, speaking of these, you know, causal factors, is there, you know, sort of common problems, common causal factors that you're seeing in zoos? And is there like common species that you're called to like more often than others? Or what, what does that sort of look like? Um, I mean, it will vary from different taxonomic groups and things. Obviously, we know a lot of MSK kind of disease, musculoskeletal disease is very heavily linked to environmental parameters in reptiles and herps. Um, but then that can be exacerbated further in maybe how much an environment encourages or allows or facilitates activity. Mm. So if you have an animal that becomes hypocalcemic, which then impacts bone density, muscle function, nerve function, becomes more lethargic, where actually the food's being placed directly in front of it, and it just has to move its head to the side to eat or, or take its water, or it's in a smaller enclosure, or actually it's it's a maybe aesthetically a brilliant looking enclosure but mm. actually it's got to climb three feet up to go anywhere and it's riddled with metabolic bone disease you know then you may actually be exacerbating some of those causal factors as well with mammals it can be a whole variety of things such as activity levels substrates like surfaces and they can vary seasonally so sand can be a brilliant substrate but actually it pays very differently on a cold icy day compared to on mm. a warm summer's day right, right. Um, or wet day um you know how we're presenting food the activity we're trying to encourage um but also there can be simple things as sometimes things live longer <laughs> yeah well. yeah yeah um so it, it's there's a lot of potential mm -hmm. i think it's usually as with everything in life it's usually never that easy it can be a whole bundle of things rolled into one um i think we've got a lot of challenges in zoos because we you know have a lot of control over an animal um for me i think one of the big dangers is when we channel an animal down a route and that's the only opportunity and maybe has food and water mm. um, and i think that becomes more dangerous when they get older and actually the only way they can get that food item is to propel themselves up something that might mean they're sore later on um in relation to species um i see a lot of hoof stock and again that probably links to feet and right. foot care um, and there's a lot of common musculoskeletal issues in general megafauna, um, so elephants, giraffe. Um, there's a study done a few years ago now that showed, um, I think, a sample of 22 giraffes. They all had arth arthritis in their what they call a distal limb, so the lower leg, um, by the age of seven, which is mm. astoundingly young to be developing yeah. osteoarthritis. Um, so it, it really varies. There's, it's 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 one of those things that can really be influenced by taxon, by environment, by activity, feeding methods, the environment we're living in, all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting what you mentioned about reptiles is because uh, we, we've talked about it a few times on, on this podcast is, you know, the way... Uh, you know, it's getting better now, but the way a lot of the uh, reptile exhibits that you see are built, they're sort of, uh, I find that there's more attention to to detail as far as their natural history and movement when it comes to uh, things like mammals, whereas, you, you know, you get uh, a reptile exhibit and it's sort of meant to just be this pretty little picture box almost mm -hmm. of fake plants and and you know, there's nowhere for the for the animal to be able to uh, exhibit species appropriate behaviors and and actually move and and so especially with some uh, you know large snakes, they can't 
you know, even stretch out all the way. And, uh, yeah, there's definitely a, a ton of problems that I've seen, uh, you know, in exhibit design for, for reptiles. So I'm sure that's a huge, huge, right. huge right. I think they've had a challenge, haven't they? That the, whether it be the, you know, the herbs community as a whole has so much understanding yet to still get in relation to environmental parameters that mm. I think in some ways the eyes have come off the ball in some of the things that maybe on the mammal side would be a little bit more fundamental yeah and that's not to say they're doing anything wrong i think that because they are so differently from that management different from that management point of view i think that's where the emphasis is put and actually alongside all the huge amount of effort and research that the herps guys are doing is actually right well we're getting that right but now they've got this input that's going to impact their metabolic rate and their muscle function and their nerve function how do we shape their environment so they can actually use it <laughs> essentially yeah. um so it's 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 it, this is it there's a slightly different tact i think with each different taxonomic group isn't there really and mm -hmm. the species you're working with and sometimes the individual you're working with as well so, oh yeah hugely yeah mm -hmm. yeah so uh, do you have a sort of, uh, you know, you've gone over your like process and, and, and what that sort of looks like. Do you have a sort of success story that you can uh, sort of take us through as far as maybe uh, an animal that was getting a more traditional pain management and, and, and you came in and uh, what sort of modifications you did and, and what that sort of looks like over the full, uh, you know, prescription of, of treatment that you that you gave the animal? And there's, there's one case um, that kind of sticks out um, to me simply because um, it just went like an absolute dream. Um, it was a lowland tapir um, that, um, again, tapir seems to be really common for having hind limb osteoarthritis. Mm. It seems to be really common among those guys. Um, and this individual um, had osteoarthritis through the whole hind limb, essentially. Um, um, or hand limbs, and it would been on pain meds, anti-inflammatories for a long time. Um, and the keepers heard one of my talks and just thought, well, nothing's really getting better. We're just on pain meds and anti-inflammatories and we're not seeing improvement. Um, and we went in and the keepers were doing an absolutely brilliant job. They'd tried loads of things already, but because they didn't have that kind of insight to what exactly arthritis and osteoarthritis is and how it's impacted and how the environment or lifestyle will kind of mimic it, we looked at things like um, flooring and bedding options. And they were a little bit challenged in some ways because they found that the animal had um, some symptoms in relation to histamine response, so allergy, kind of allergic response in its skin to a lot of beddings. It was getting quite agitated. Um, so they were quite limited on that, and they were using uh, rubber mats, which was the best they could do on a very hard concrete floor. And they had some insulation issues within the house as well. Um, their feeding um, as well was very routine in its placement. Um, and their enrichment devices were all very quite high up because the mm. keepers were thinking, let's get the animal working hard because um, it will build up its muscles. And it's like, well, that's, that is a, a good train of thought. But actually, because this animal was so sore mm. and with arthritis tends to come weak muscles, the fatigue easy as well, and further instability within the joints. And 
that then when an animal pushes itself too far, it gets sore and you get more inflammation and further deterioration of the joint. So actually it was just about reframing how the keepers were thinking about presentation of enrichment and going, yes, we should be getting activity, but in this instance, it's gonna be the right type of activity. Um, And looking at some of the bedding options in the end, I think we went with some like coconut fiber. And again, the keepers initially put in this huge, big, thick substrate in the bedding. And they're like, oh, it's really nice and soft. And I said, well, actually, okay, that's good. But yes, a hard floor is going to be bad on a sore joint, but a really deep soft substrate is going to be really fatiguing on weak muscles around those arthritic joints. Mm. So we slowly put the substrate in, in increments and allowed it to com- compact down slightly because it was it was gorgeous and soft. I wanted to lie down it to be fair yeah. when it first <laughs> went in. Um, but um just again slowly habituating the animal to that change and then they had a really nice reinforcement history as well so we used built on their target training put some really nice exercises in that were really simple the keepers were really passionate about their training so it wasn't Mm. hard to put on really nice and easy um and um i think what the we saw some quite quick changes really um there's a kind of whole host of things we, we did look at within the environment the feeding as well um had the amount of browse location placing it to get more gentle movement activity about the enclosure but the the biggest telltale sign with that was they they started to see um we used as an outcome measure a feeder that had um like i think we used honey from bottom to top and we found very early on that the animal wouldn't want to interact with the feeder past a certain height because it became too uncomfortable mm. and as it became more comfortable we found it <clears throat> feeding in a much higher height as time went on and oh. um, we also saw greater repertoire behaviors um and later down the line it tried to climb over the fence out of its enclosure oh <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit of a shock yeah um and they had to raise the fencing around the enclosure that's a good sign um, but because it had been quite sore and arthritic it, it just never considered that as an option prior to that mm. Um, and then eventually it came off its pain meds entirely. Um, and it's been off its pain meds for about three years now, I think. Wow. Um, and I've not seen it since. Um, just, um, yeah. So that that was a really nice one because there was just some really subtle adjustments. There wasn't anything major. I had a, a ma- There was an amazing reinforcement history to build on. And for me, I think it's, it's the big changes in behavior that really show you've made that difference. Yeah. And that was a really nice case of that, I thought. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, like training for um, different exercises for the animal. What What is an example of what that would look like as far as some, some basic ones that... Um, it depends on what you're kind of trying to achieve because it might be that we're targeting a few different things. It mm. could be as simple as a weight shift and maybe utilizing something in an enclosure, um, like a, a gentle incline, um an object to stand on um a head turn of the head a posture shift and um, it could be a variety of things and um, one thing i did with a i trialed it with a komodo dragon i'm doing um with some dragons in india currently um where they have very limited movement of the, the axial skeleton the spine and mm. um, um, while and um, what i did with another lizard historically is it went off its back legs because it had a spinal pathology and we once we got it up and walking again it had very limited spinal movement so to regain that um rather than use my hands and go in and bend the spine round and with a reptile that didn't actually like being handled that yeah. much but had a really good training history we used a target and it would target its head round to the side and we over time increased the head turn in increments 
Mm. Um, so eventually, and then once it became comfortable with that, we increased the um, we increased the contact period with the target. So at the end, it was being turned into a stretch to actually put oh. stretch through the muscle tissue as well. And what we saw with that is we saw an increased range of motion through the back. So we were getting an animal to actively do a range of motion exercise and actively do a stretch down its back muscles, essentially. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, an amazing, yeah. Amazing example of, you know, cooperative care and, uh, you know, instead of causing an animal stress through manipulation, you're encouraging it to do it itself. That's, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is it. And stress is so detrimental. I think, I mean, obviously it's all about, you know, wild animals or humans and animals full stop, but you know, when you go in and you do manual therapy, you're, whether it's chiropractic or what, you're, whether you're doing an adjustment to a bone or a muscle, at the end of the day, your, your goal is to release the tension of, or the spasm of the muscle that's around mm. the joint that's causing that joint to be asymmetrical. So regardless of your approach, the goal is the same. But if you go in with an animal and cause stress and your goal is to release muscle spasm and you cause stress, you probably increase the muscle spasm again because the animal goes, ah, oh, no, I don't like what's happening. So it, it's... For me, when we when we lead with the manual therapy and there is any iota of stress, you've wasted your time, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but if you, I mean, to be fair, with some tapirs I've treated, they are they are just dogs of the zoo world. And, yeah. You know, if you scratch their tummy, you can do what you want. Yeah. So in that case, it, it makes sense to do some manual therapy because the animal has enjoys that human interaction. But as right. a, you know, I'm sure you're aware there's few examples of species that are like that in, yeah. in a lot of collections, you know. So tapirs are probably more of the isolated example mm -hmm. of that. Well and and animals that are in, you know, protected contact situations that you would exactly have to do some sort of training. Um yeah, yeah that's that's the, yeah, that's really interesting. And in that Okapi example, um, you know, the enrichment was one of the things that had to be sort of modified to stop the uh, some of the movements that wasn't necessarily um, uh, good for the animal's healing. Do, do you have examples of, you know, enrichment being used as like a sort of therapy tool? And and how should we go about thinking of, uh, you know, modifying enrichment as an animal ages? So, yeah, so for me, kind of linking back to that whole idea of, you know, the, the more scientific modern approach for a human patient is tackling all those things. Um, enrichment's a huge part of how we shape an animal's life experience, you know, how we present food, how we, um, you know, how we get them out up and about and moving. So it's something that for me that should be changing throughout an animal's life. If we're doing the same thing from zero to the end we're doing something wrong because animals anatomy and bodies change throughout um you know there's if we look at domestic dogs as an example um you know we can actually do a lot of damage with a with a young pup with things like throwing ball mm. um slippy floors are horrific for puppies um you know doing too much activity can actually lead them down a road of issues later on so do we have young animals that we're encouraging to do something that's maybe a little bit too much too soon or as they are getting older and arthritis cre creeps in are we still expecting the same behaviors from them you know um again going back to a domestic dog example um one of the things i hate as a physio is when you see someone get out of the park with the dog and the ball um, comes out and you know those kind of plastic sticks where oh you yeah the, end, the, <laughs> the chuckets like my, my partner likes to call them the wanga <laughs> <laughs> um you know and you get see people get out of the car with a dog and the whole walk 
the walk is the dog chasing that ball, flying around the field and coming then back. But an animal can has, find something so high value and be so full of adrenaline and excitement that it does that. And actually, when it gets back in that car, it's crippled. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you, you know. So what I think we need to keep away from is doing something that's really high intensity for an animal that's maybe physically in a weakened state to do that. And also that isn't as, as beneficial for anatomy, you know, with a lot, a lot of how the musculoskeletal anatomy works is by it repairs itself and maintains itself by being used. So muscle mass is maintained by being used. Bone density is maintained by it's being used. Joints are maintained nerves. So if we do something super intense and lasts two seconds, then the animal isn't potentially doing as much potential activity as it could. And obviously that is the big challenge we have in zoos, isn't it? That's what we're all trying to shift against anyway. But right. um, yeah, for me, it's examples. Um, I think a bit of a controversial one. I think pole feeders for big cats. I think mm. a young fit animal, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, if it's been introduced over time, um, if you have a geriatric big cat, um and I've, I've seen some veterinary specialists use it as um a measure of how an animal's doing mm. um and it's like yes okay it did get up there and it did do it and it came down again um but that's the only way it gets food for the next two three weeks right. um and actually post that event it's going to be sore it's going to lie still for a few days and it's going to lick it it's going to feel sorry for itself it's not going to do much and it's going to seize up so Yes, we might see those periods of the animal doing that activity, but actually the result of it, we might miss because Mm. those periods of inactivity are really easily missed. And as a busy keeper, I remember running around and getting stuff done. It's only the stuff that the animal was doing that I tended to notice. You know, you tend to miss the uh, when it's gone on lying in its bed and it's seized up and it's not moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's hard to be too specific because it yeah. is really case specific. But you know, arthritis, osteoarthritis is the common one. It's an inflammatory disease. It tends to come about as we get older, um, or through you know through kind of trauma. Um, but essentially, as animals get older, um, in human beings, animals also experience what we call sarcopenia. And in human beings, the really depressing bit for humans, we get it from the age of 30 onwards and we lose 10% of muscle mass per decade for the rest of our life. Mm. Um, So same happens with animals as they get older or as they do less, they lose muscle mass. The less muscle you have supporting a joint, the more unstable it becomes. And as the pathologist at the vet school always likes to say, an unstable joint will become an arthritic joint. And as it becomes arthritic, it becomes painful. It uses the joint less. So it uses the joint less, so the joint gets then mm. um, more stiff. The muscle right. gets weaker. There's sort less support, and it's this loop. vicious circle that right. keeps going. Mm-hmm. So if we if we are getting an animal with a sore and stable joint to rock it up at something, and that's the only the, the only activity, and then it's sore, and then it does less, it's going to be perpetuating that vicious cycle essentially. Right. So we should be framing where our animal is in its life, what it's capable of, and actually what should we be doing to maintain things mm-hmm. and there's a really nice study done um chester zoo and big cats um where historically they used to feed mainly things like horses legs um and it, the animal the lions would just come along pitch up chew on it not not really a lot would happen and they shifted um to um whole carcass feeds where they would buy a calf from um a the kind of 
the human food system. Mm. And it comes from an avatar really fresh, probably still warm. They put <laughs> it in the enclosure, and what the keepers noticed quite early on was the lionesses were coming out and grabbing this animal by the throat. And I remember speaking to one of the keepers, and she said, I've never seen that happen before. Um, and I've looked after these lions for years, and they're captive bred. Mm. Um, and she said, it must be that presentation of a whole animal and that warmth is maybe stimulating that natural behavior. But what the study showed later was they found increased feeding time, increased activity, um, increased sleep quality, and a reduction in stereotypical behaviors. Mm. And that is just a powerful statement because yeah. on top of everything we've just said, stereotypical behaviors increase stress and mm -hmm. stress inflammation is bad for pain and, and pain management. Um, Stereotypical behaviors such as swaying, pacing can be repetitive and bad for joints long term as well. If you're doing repetitive movement and orthotic joints and then sleep quality is hugely important. If you have any kind of condition, the quality of your sleep is hugely important for your general well-being and recovery as well. So looking at all those factors are really important considerations for managing it as well. So, yeah, there's <laughs> a lot to think about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. So, so like really like when designing an enrichment program, you know, maybe for not a geriatric animal, but for, you know, maybe a sort of middle-aged animal keepers should be keeping in mind, like what they have traditionally done, what, what the animal has traditionally done and sort of keep that in mind when, and maybe building an animal up to something as opposed to yeah, yeah, subjecting yeah. it to a scenario where it might be, it might be hurting itself. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, to take it to an extreme example, you know, if we look at um, humans that go out for a jog or go running um, and at risk mm. of things like shin, splint, shin splints and shin splints are essentially a delay in tissue adaptation where, you know, your cardiovascular fitness and your your muscle muscle condition and muscular fitness changes much a lot quicker than your bone density. So your be able to exert much more physical force through through the muscles as they adapt but the bone bone density is very adaptable and changes throughout your life um and what happens is the bone density should increase as someone's doing more running so it can withstand that increased force right but because they are exerting more force through fitter muscles they can cause basically micro fractures and bones which is essentially what splinters are kind of are really um so essentially going one to a million is something we want to avoid as well but um particularly the younger animal and i as you've hit the nail on the head maybe putting something in and slowly kind of mm -hmm. making it more difficult over time would be no bad thing i mean obviously a, a human runner is an extreme example but the same if it's the only way an animal is being fed it might be worth thinking about um but even just general things like food presentation so another good example um domestic horses there's been loads of research done um, with hay feeders with domestic horses where if we think about domestic horse even though they are domesticated animal the anatomy for their feeding behaviors is still totally part of them so the back of right. their skull they have what's called a nuchal ligament that inserts in the back of the skull goes up over the top of the spine the spinous processes up over the shoulders and spays out into connective tissue and that holds the head and neck in the grazing position and means oh. that they're not having to but strain muscle or fatigue muscle because it's like an elastic bungee cord holding the head for long periods of feeding. What we what the research has found with domestic horses, if we use hay, hay nets consistently the same height day in and day out, and the animal has to come up 
and twist and turn, we know it causes malocclusion, which is kind of distortion of tooth, teeth growth. Um, it can lead to muscular issues and even arthritis in the neck and things long-term as well. So, you know, are we doing things which are the same thing over and over mm. and over again as well? Because we might be pushing an animal down the road of other issues. You know, could we have some subtle variation, but in context of the anat that animal's anatomy and natural history? So obviously actually being fully aware of the horse's anatomy is hugely important for how we feed them. But the, the way we use a hay net well isn't, we're not going to say hay nets are evil and we shouldn't use them. But what we know is varying the height reduces that risk right. having days with foot we you know because sometimes the horses do have to be stabled they can't always be out grazing so having days of varied height and days with floor feeding negates that risk that we talked about before so mm. some variation in context is also hugely important yeah that's so interesting because uh you know especially in uh enrichment programs that maybe aren't as robust and varied as they should be and and horses are a great example because you know enrichment is not something that is commonly thought about as much as it should be in the equine world uh you know hay nets are sort of that that's if you're gonna see one enrichment in in a horse's atmosphere it's going to be you know the, the hay net uh but and that's yeah and and how often are those things being varied and there's tons of examples of that i'm sure in in zoos and you mentioned you know stereotypic behaviors and stuff and how how often are you are you seeing those sort of repetitive strain into injuries from, you know, maybe being fed the same way and, and, uh, you know, maybe pacing the same loop and, and, and those kind of things. Is that like a problem that you're seeing a lot of? Um, I, yeah, very much so. I think again, um, it comes down to either a cultural thing in a collection of, oh, this is just what we've always done or yeah. a misunderstanding of what the animal's actually doing. So, to turn it on its heads, um, if we think about giraffe, your giraffe are obviously more of a browsing animal, but mm -hmm. also have a nuchal ligament. But the role of the nuchal ligament in the giraffe is to actually hold the head up because of the right. sheer size of the head and neck. So I quite often see keepers putting food really high up, thinking, oh, if they're going up high, they're, they're working harder. But actually, if it's at head height, head height anyway, they're not working that hard because the nuchal ligament is maintaining the head at that height. So mm. actually, if we look at more natural instances, there will be time when they are browsing next to the floor or drinking from mm. groundwater. So if they are feeding up high all the time, we're negating the more cranial musculature in the neck and we're not developing that part of the muscle. And I've seen it, I've seen about two drafts now where the development of the neck muscle is quite asymmetrical because uh -huh. they've maybe been feeding consistently at certain heights. And it could be, again, the keepers are limited because that's the way the the enclosure was built and that's the only place they yeah, can put the food right. there or whatever. So sometimes it's it's either just a little bit of misunderstanding of what they're actually driving at or um, they're stuck with what was built, you know, two or three generations before, essentially. Yeah, yeah, do yeah. Best with it. Um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's a good few examples of that. There's, you know, there, there can be trends, I think, that come in and out of the zoo world where oh, we must do this at this height. And again, um, there's a, a brilliant keeper I talk to all the time. And for him, he says the most important thing we should do for an animal is choice. Yeah. And, and I think that's so important because if you have an animal experiencing a long-term issue and you channel it down that thing that you believe is right, it could actually be wrong because we were all wrong sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and giving that animal choice and seeing where their selection lies can be so telling to how the animal is doing as well. Mm. So choice is profoundly important, I think.
Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like, uh, you know, choice and variety because, you know, it's so easy to make uh, the environments we have so static, you know, where the, yeah. they're going to the hay feeder that's just on a length of rope and it's clipped to the same, same spot every day, or, you know, they're walking up the same ramp every day. They're going to the same spot to get food every day. Uh, and, and yeah, if they're not able to choose how to do that or where to do that, like you, there might be those repetitive strain injuries, yeah. um, and they might not be able to properly, properly heal from them because they're doing the same thing. Day yeah, in, day out. yeah. There was again uh, going back kind of to reptiles. There's a question mark as well. That, again, there's no kind of evidence to this because we're there's this is there's a long term time off any evidence for this area. But historically, again, we saw a lot of neck issues in in kind of um, drag captive Komodo dragons, and there's a lot of debate about how we should feed a Komodo dragon in relation mm. to quantity. So definitely within a lot of zoos, we see a lot of dragons being fed up fed quite quickly and getting big sizes but from what i know of wild dragons the males get big but for a long time they're, they're muscular but they're super lean they're, mm. they're lean mean fighting machines and as they get older they get big big monster things and i've seen a lot of captivity where they do get big quite quick and yeah. it doesn't always look like muscle <laughs> um and again historically there was a big trend of putting feed, food items really high up and getting this big chunky animal that isn't that active a lot of the time where right. a wild dragon might be traversing for a long long time to find and follow a food item a prey item um and then is up and grabbing and rotating and pulling and dragging you know and again when you're an animal of that size if we think about how dragons might feed um in the wild there could be multiple dragons around one carcass who are all just mm. pulling bits off um, right. And the way they feed as well, they plank their feet down and they do a pull in what we call a lateral arc where they use the cervical musculature and, the, and their shoulders mm, more than right. their head and neck because their head and necks, their, their skulls are very wire mesh-like. Um, so they clamp in with those kind of scissor-like teeth and they pull to the sides. But those are also muscles that are engaged in locomotion. Oh, okay. Um, because of the way lizards walk, they are very serpentine and they're axial musculature from the neck all the way down is hugely fundamental in the movement of their limbs and their locomotion so i do wonder and again i'd, I'd hope hopefully we find this out one day and maybe i'm just being paranoid but are we where are we historically doing very high demand tasks for mm. a very large animal that may be prematurely pre, pre, um, prematurely large that then could have been exacerbated by misunderstanding environmental parameters at the time um, to do high intensive activities that weren't probably seen that much in, in you know, naturally anyway. And mm. um, I spoke to a guy from Indonesia who's saying that he believes that trend started in zoos because of what we call tripodal standing, where you, when you see two komodos maybe displaying or competing, they'll they'll stand onto their tail to display. And he said you don't really see it very often outside of that. And he said there was a trend of photographers going out in situ, putting food items up high to get them to go, oh, like this, and uh -oh. snap that photo. And he said he wondered, was that kind of imagery causing a trend in collections? And I just thought, uh -oh. it was, you know, he was the expert more than me because he was from a really well, you know, very, very informed yeah. Um, person from a very informed organization but um, i just thought it was a really interesting point from him really you know where are we being misinformed about what their day looks like and how often they would do that kind of activity yeah no having a better idea of what their actual natural history and time budget throughout the day actually looks mm -hmm. like yeah super yeah. important it, it sounds to me like you know as zoos 
in developing a sort of geriatrics program and how to deal with geriatrics uh, and and support them as as animals, all animals as they age, it sounds to me like, you know, we can't w- be waiting until the animal's already aging. Like we have to be thinking about these things like when they're quite young and sort of developing that sort of resiliency in their environment and in, in them in order to be able to cope with some of these advanced ages that they're actually getting to in, in captivity. Hugely, yeah, because I think you can you can you can encourage activity and a lifestyle in an animal which will create greater longevity of health. Mm. I think. I think that is totally capable, you know. Um I mean there's you know, I see I treat shit lot of domestic dogs well. I see dogs that are crippled at seven, but I think mm. don't have long left. Um, and then currently there's a dog in Portugal that's 31 years old. And you think, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I listened to an interview with the owner, and everything he had done quite non-intentionally was bang on in the relation to, you know, the animal wanders around the land. Um, they, they, they live in the middle of nowhere where there's not really any stresses. Um he just potters around all day. You know, he's not forced to do anything too intense. He does mm. everything of his own volition. He's loved. He gets fusses. He gets some playtime. Um, he's on a bloody good diet. And it just goes to show that actually, yes, there's a nature and nurture element, but the nurture can be pretty powerful when it's done right, you know. Mm-hmm. Then also, I think maybe we need to be thinking about future-proofing our enclosures because I've seen some fabulous examples of kind of inbuilt enrichment right um, where you go that is amazing but then i think well when the animals are old that old, yeah totally not not enjoyed um or the animal will get to the point one day where it goes i can't do that anymore um mm. you know so do we need to be shooting when we're doing these big convoluted bills that are really exciting and enhance the keepers in the animal's life do we need to future proof how those can be adapted as well yeah, well, and 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 uh, you know, as well as future proofing, also making them more as modular and as yeah. uh, you know adaptive as possible. Being able to give the variety very easily, change up the furniture, changing up the perches, changing up you know access to certain areas to avoid those repetitive motions as well. Like, yeah, it's super important when you're thinking about making this exhibits. Is yeah, I I think it's an area that I think keepers should be taught more about because obviously i know there's a variety of programs isn't that kind of worldwide for routes for people mm. to go into keeping and stuff and um i think it's something that's under really under taught i think if keepers had a better understanding of these diseases and how um how they develop you know what causes aggravation i think it would better um you know better kind of equip them to what I like to call clinically reason their their choices. Mm. You know, and it's a it's a term we like to use in the veterinary world, clinically reason of, you know, what is it about this animal's presentation, disease, diagnosis that's making me choose this course of treatment. Um and I think it's clinical reasoning should be something that's totally part of a keeper. And that as I said, if we take that more whole picture approach, the keeper should be a huge part of the treatment process. Mm. Because what they do day to day will have a huge impact on recovery or no recovery. (laughs) So for me, husbandry is part of the treatment. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah. So, so interesting. I think we, you know, touched on a lot of really interesting points. There's a lot to, lot to think about in 
you know, supporting an animal and setting them up for success over the long term. It's yeah, it's super important. And I know in, in North America, and I'm sure it's the same in, in, in the UK, like there's a huge population of very older aging animals in zoos. And it's something, you know, that should be at the forefront of people's mind in collection planning and in, uh, you know, supporting their medical programs. Like it's very, very important. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, if there was a poster you could put up in every animal care facility, I'm, I'm, we've talked about a number of things that uh, people should know. Uh, what, what would this poster say and, and, and why would it say that? Oh, um, the, yeah, there is um, an interesting quote, and I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, that I saw in a, a lecture the other week. And it was a person saying, looking at his dog and thinking, if you're a little bit more intelligent, um, you know, you'd be able to tell me what you're thinking. Um, mm. And the dog, he th- the dog kind of thinks back, if, you know, if you were a little bit more intelligent, I wouldn't have to. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just thought it was a really nice little kind of quote in there. I think the great danger um, that any any professional or pet owner can get into is the 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 kind of blinded assumption that we always know what is best for the animal. Mm. Um, you know, and any professional I think can get caught into that, and I think we can get blinded by our own experience um, or what a book says sometimes, where you know every case is different, every individual is different. Um, there was a case recently where um i uh me and my partner went to treat a, a gorilla um and the keepers were saying we keep it isolated um on its own and because of my prior experiences as a keep a keeper my 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 brain went oh well, you know, that's not a good choice mm. the poor animal obviously oh, you know what if it's mind yeah but when we unpicked it and i got the history out of the keepers and realized the animal had selected that situation mm. you know the animal had was living with a bachelor group um, of three other little thug, thugs <laughs> who got a little <laughs> bit bored of. And actually, you know, you think about gorilla, you know, natural history that males do live, choose to live in bachelor groups or um, or have a solitary lifestyle. And this animal is doing really well in a solitary lifestyle. So sometimes I think we need to stop, take a breath um, and assess what the animal's telling us. Mm. It can be so easy to miss, particularly when we have prey animals or even non-prey animals that are very good at hiding pain oh, yeah. and making do and getting around life. Um, and we can miss the subtle signs that actually we need to change what we're doing and we don't always know best. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's something that we need. Everyone, I think, needs to think sometimes. Yeah, no, that's that's super important. Well, and especially with uh, with reptiles, uh, it's next level the pain hiding and the signs Huge are leg. even even more subtle. So yeah, it's yeah super important to 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 know and to take a step back and to be looking at what the animals telling you and and what you can what you can learn. So yeah, super super important. Uh, well, this was fantastic, Matthew. I, I, there's so much to uh, unpack here and, and, and so much to think about. Do you have any sort of final uh, plugs or, or, or takeaways or anything? Where can people Ooh. follow you or get to see what um, you're up to? Yeah, so um, I'm kind of on social media. So I'm on Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook. So if you look for Shackleton Vet Physio or Shackleton Vet Physiotherapy. Um, I also have some events coming up. Um, so one on site for any of you kind of UK follow European followers, and um, we're running a workshop 
at the Peyton Zoo on the South Coast mm. and the association with ABWAC, which is the Association of British Wild Animal Keepers. Um, and that is um, identifying and supporting lameness in zoo animals. And that's going to be a really cool event because it's going to be a two-day event. Uh, we go over what lameness is, what arthritis is, how it develops, assessment techniques, management techniques. So we kind of unpick some of the stuff we've been talking about today. And it's basically hopefully there to upskill keepers and other professionals mm -hmm. to they go away and think right how do i identify and how do i monitor long term um, my animals that are more geriatric or lame and how do i adapt my management as well so that's just get getting people keepers and people to look you know to upskill their ability to identify lameness identify pain uh, and then also online hopefully soon um i'm doing a um a webinar with Jurag Patel, who is a behaviorist and does a lot of zoo consulting in the States and Europe as well. And he does a lot of TV work. And we're going to do a few nights, um, myself coming from the physiological part and disease part for enrichment, kind of mm. going deeper dive in kind of what we've been talking about. And then him being the behavior expert, because he's a clinical behaviorist and I'm not a clinical behaviorist, um, he's going to go into actually the role enrichment plays in behavior. Um, mm. And he's going to unpick more the part of, about actually enrichment. The research is showing us now is a big part of pain management. And I'll talk about the physiological side of that. And he'll talk about the, the behavior part of that. Um, so that's hopefully dates are going to be coming sometime in the future for that as well. Um, and I'll post that on all my social media stuff. But um, yeah, if anyone's got any questions or anything like that, feel free to reach out on social media. And I do kind of do bespoke talks and mm. work uh, remotely and abroad as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'll link everything uh, uh, that we just talked about in the in the show notes, so people can can check you out and, and learn more and keep an eye out for those dates. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, they sound super interesting. So thank you so much, uh, Matthew. This was this was great. Uh, so much so much to learn here. So uh, thank you again for uh, for coming on. It was fantastic. Not sorry. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, and to everybody listening, uh, thanks, and uh, until next time. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.